in. A component of all religions is the priest. He is the go-between, the intermediary between God and man, which reminds me of a riddle. What do you call a sleepwalking priest? The answer, a Roman Catholic. (laughs) Hey, don't laugh too loud. You'll disturb the neighbors. Hopefully, you'll push those little laugh emojis there on the Facebook. Actually, this past week, I read of a Catholic priest in Maryland who in the time, this time of coronavirus is performing drive-through confessionals. He has a confessional lane in the church parking lot. And in light of social distancing guidelines, his chair is six feet from the car window. And apparently, people are keeping him busy. You know, there is a sense in every human heart that we're not enough that we need help to get to God. This was true of Israel of old, and to satisfy that need, God provided them a priest. Yet in the next three chapters, Hebrews 5, 6, and 7, the writer describes how Jewish priests paled in comparison to the priesthood of Jesus. It's true we need a priest. And for a time, God sanctioned priests from the tribe of Levi. But now, our Savior, Jesus, is far better. Where the Levites failed, Jesus has succeeded. The Jews trusted in a high priest, but to those who trust in Jesus alone, he is a great high priest. Well, chapter 5 begins. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Notice the point here. Priests for men are taken from men. And yet, this isn't a given in all religions. Did you know that in Vietnam, elephants are considered sacred? Touch an elephant and it supposedly brings you good luck. Under most forms of paganism, animals are thought to procure divine help. Some of the Jewish rabbis thought of angels in a similar way. Divine assistance was conveyed to men through angels. But the writer of the Hebrews insists that priests for men come from men. Your dog fetches your slippers. Your guardian angel keeps your car from swerving into the ditch, but neither angels or animals help us in things pertaining to God. Neither has any impact on our spiritual status and or can affect our relationship with God. Thus, a good priest has to be human. And here's why, verse 2. So he can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. An effective priest has to be compassionate and sensitive to human weakness. You see, this was the problem with the angels. Angels never tire. They never hunger. They never sleep. The angelic answer for weakness is to buck up. When angels see us cave in, it baffles them. Angels are cold-blooded do-gooders see a puny human sin or give in, and they pick up their swords to avenge God's honor. It boggles their brain that God would hold judgment at bay and show humankind mercy. But in becoming a man, Jesus became acquainted with human weakness. 
Jesus grew tired and hungry and thirsty. He cried and hurt. He grew angry and disappointed. In his 30-plus years, Jesus ran the whole gamut of human emotions. And now he is able to empathize. He's been where you're at. He understands what you need. Jesus can supply the soulless and strength that we crave. He is the perfect high priest. And the second trait that a priest needs is an awareness of human sinfulness. Verse 3. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. You know, once a year, the high priest offered a sacrifice that covered the sins of the nation. But before he made that sacrifice for Israel, he first offered a sacrifice for himself. His own sin had to be covered. God never intended for a priest to have a holier-than-thou attitude. The fact he sacrificed for his own sins first was a safeguard against any self-righteousness. The only priest who never sinned was our high priest, Jesus Christ. He was the one perfect man. And yet even Jesus bore the shame of our sin. On the cross of Calvary, our sin was thrust upon his innocent shoulders. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 21 tells us, He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus felt the alienation caused by our sin. He knows sin's many horrors. As a man, Jesus is acquainted with our neediness. It qualifies him perfectly to be our priest. And then verse 4, And no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. See, a priest had to be a man, but not just any man. He had to be a man appointed by God. In the Old Testament, God chose priests from the tribe of Levi and from the family of Aaron. In fact, on occasion in the Old Testament, people self-assumed the role of priest. And boy, did God judge them severely. In 2 Chronicles 26, you remember King Uzziah wasn't content with being king. He also wanted to be priest. But when he usurped the priestly post, God struck him with leprosy. The point is, priests were always God-appointed. And this was the case with our Lord Jesus. Even God's own son didn't assume the role of priest. He was appointed by the Father in heaven, verse 5 tells us. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become high priest, but it was he who said to him, and here the author quotes from Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, at first, the application of this verse to this argument seems sort of strange. What does the birth of Jesus have to do with God appointing him as the high priest? But when you compare Scripture with Scripture, you learn there's more to the story. In Acts chapter 13, verse 33, Paul applies Psalm 2, verse 7, not to Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, but to his resurrection. Jesus was begotten, or literally, he began a glorious new life. When he rose from the dead and ascended to the Father in heaven at his right hand. At that point, Jesus was appointed high priest in the heavenly temple. And today, he ministers before the Father as his chosen intermediary interceding for you and me. Well, Verse 6 is also helpful. He says, as he also says in another place, and here he quotes 
Psalm 110, verse 4. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, here's a crucial point. Jesus was not a Levitical priest. During his earthly ministry, Jesus never wore a priestly garment or offered a Levitical sacrifice or ministered as a priest in the temple at Jerusalem. Jesus was a priest, but not of the Old Testament variety, a priest after the order of Levi. Jesus was a different type of priest entirely, a type of priest like Melchizedek. Levitical priests were temporary and earthly. Jesus, though, was an eternal and heavenly priest. As Psalm 110 reads, you are a priest forever. Next week, we're going to learn much more from Hebrews 7 about Melchizedek, about his priesthood, and how it relates to Jesus. Well, Back to the human requirement for being a priest. The writer recalls the earthly ministry of Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears. And here he hearkens us back to the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. There where the Lord prayed with such mental pain and in such spiritual anguish that his sweat had the consistency of thick droplets of blood. There in the garden, Jesus prayed to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. You know, I've read of people who suggest that Jesus prayed in the garden to avoid the cross. Let this cup pass from me was a plea to escape. He was asking the Father to find another way to redeem the world. But I disagree. Throughout Jesus' life, from the crib to the cross, Jesus' one aim was to die for the sins of mankind. To suggest that he got to the end of his journey and had second thoughts is insulting. Beside, the author of Hebrews suggests here that God answered his prayer. Obviously, Jesus wasn't asking to bypass the cross. I believe his angst in the garden centered around the hurt and the pain that his disciples would cause him later. He knew that they would deny him and abandon him. Jesus was being asked to die for brothers who would turn traitor, to lay it all down and endure pain for folks who would boast their allegiance, then stab him in the back. And God answered Jesus' prayer. God filled his heart with mercy. And isn't this the great challenge for his followers? Are we willing to love the brother who does us dirty? Even forgive the enemy we once thought was a friend? A.W. Pink writes, Our sharpest trials often come from those in whom we have instilled the most trust and in whom we have shown the greatest kindness. Jesus could have gotten bitter at his disciples. He could have stopped loving them. But instead, he asked God to take away any resentment, the cup of resentment. And I believe God answered his prayer. If God gave you such love, would you use it to forgive your enemy? And through it all, although he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And isn't this a strange thought when we apply it to Jesus, that the Son of God learned obedience? Now, don't misunderstand. Jesus was never disobedient. It's just that in heaven, as God's equal, he never had the opportunity to obey. You don't have to obey when you're the boss. 
and you're always calling the shots. But when Jesus laid aside his heavenly glory and became a man, assuming the role of a servant, for the very first time, the Son of God was called on to take orders. And thus, Jesus learned obedience. He experienced the rigors and consequences of obedience firsthand. Verse 9, and having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Jesus learned to obey so that he could be a good boss. You know, I once read that years ago, Delta Airlines required all newly hired executives to first work in the grunt areas of the business. The executives in training would do a stint handling baggage or ticketing passengers or cleaning airplanes. Before they were trusted to hand down decisions from the top, they first had to learn from experience how those decisions affected the people at the bottom. And this was Jesus. Hey, be certain when a command comes down from Jesus, it's not coming from some bigwig who's oblivious to your situation. Before Jesus started giving orders, he learned how to take them. Rest assured, his commandments are for our good. And with his help, they're always within our capacities to obey. And then verse 10 tells us again, Jesus has been called by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Often the problem is a dull preacher or a dull sermon, I admit it. Yet here it's not dull preaching, but dull hearing, that's the problem. The word dull here means sluggish in the ears. Reminds me of the man who wore a hearing aid for 20 years. Actually, it never really helped him until it was discovered that he'd been wearing the device in the wrong ear. For two decades, the hearing aid muffled the hearing in his good ear and made his situation worse. Likewise, though, there are believers with hearing problems. Some are selective listeners. They hear only what they want to hear or what applies to their spouse or their boss or their kids and never what applies to them. A pastor was once asked if his church needed a deaf ministry. He replied, I think our whole church needs a deaf ministry. They just don't seem to hear what I'm saying. The Hebrews' problem wasn't dull teaching, but dull listening. They liked to critique the preacher's ability when the problem was their lack of hearing. You know, the author of Hebrews had so many wonderful truths that he wanted to share. He says in verse 11 that he has much to say about the priestly ministry of Jesus. Think of it. Jesus is in heaven right now praying for you and me. What an intriguing thought, especially in a world in the midst of a pandemic virus. Jesus' priestly role piques my curiosity. I'd love to learn more about such mysteries. But you see, the author says he can't go on because his readers aren't ready. They're stuck on the basics. I wonder what insights God has awaiting you and me. But he refuses to reveal them until we listen to what he's already said. Verse 12 tells us, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. The first principles are literally the ABCs of Christianity. These believers still hadn't learned the biblical basics. 
You know, it's foolish to teach t-ballers pickoff plays when they can't put their glove on correctly. You got to learn the basics before you can move on to the deeper stuff. Some of the Hebrews should have been teachers by this point. Their spiritual growth and maturity had not measured up to the depth of the teaching they'd received. The writer here of Hebrews continues to mourn the immaturity of his readers. He says, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. See, milk is for babies, people with no teeth, who aren't able to digest. It may be cute to see an infant with a bottle in its mouth, but it would be disgusting to see a college freshman walking around sucking on a baby bottle. And it's equally disturbing to see a person who's been a Christian for years still struggling in the basics. Verse 13, for everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Here's how to move out of babydom from milk to meat. It takes more than just adding knowledge, more than just taking in spiritual calories. To build muscle, you have to exercise what you know. We grow spiritually by reason of use, we're told. Christian maturity comes by applying and using what we learn. Several years ago, I saw an NBC News article entitled, Big Baby Boom, Supersized Deliveries Have Doctors Worried. Over the last few decades, it seems, there's been a spike in the birth of big babies. In 2013, a Pennsylvania woman birthed a 13-pound, 12-ounce little girl. A German baby weighed in at 13 and a half pounds. One British mother delivered little George, who weighed 15 pounds and 7 ounces. They returned his infant clothes and brought him home in PJs meant for a 6-month-old. See, today, hospitals are seeing a rash of big babies, but so are churches. We've got bloated believers with lots of fat. Oh, they know a lot, but they need to apply what they know and turn it into muscle. Don't be a big baby. Let's all grow up into Christ and mature in our faith. Well, chapter 6 begins, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, the spiritual ABCs. In other words, the writer wants to move on into deeper matters. Let us go on to perfection or maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, he wants to move on from these basic elements. And yet, notice this list, the list of the basics. This is what the author considers to be the elementary principles. And he sets them out in three pairs. First is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. You know, the first two basic truths of Christian discipleship relate to salvation. We become Christians when we realize that even our best efforts are as filthy rags in the eyes of God. They're dead works. Hey, everyone's best works are dead works. No one earns their way to God. 
They come by grace through faith. Salvation is God's free gift. And then notice second, he speaks of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands. This second pair of basic Christian truths concern the work of the Holy Spirit. Notice Paul says baptisms, plural. Realize there are three baptisms spoken of in the New Testament. First, there's the spiritual baptism into the body of Christ. This is our spiritual initiation, our fusion into God's family. Second is God's is water baptism. This is symbolic of what God does in our hearts. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, in him we die to sin and we rise to new life. And third, there's power baptism or anointing. This is a point in time filling of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to be a witness. How we need to experience all three baptisms. Well, then there's also the laying on of hands by church members which also relates to the work of the Holy Spirit. In the early church, when a person was appointed by the Spirit to an office in the church or to a mission of the church, it was confirmed by the laying on of hands. Also, when, we, when spiritual gifts are bestowed by God, they often are received by the laying on of hands. God uses the touch of holy hands. And this is what we're missing this morning with online church. We need that loving touch. And then the third pair of basic doctrines deal with the end times of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. One day, the bodies of both the righteous and wicked will be resurrected immortal. Every human being will live forever. But then comes the judgment. Every one of us will be assigned to either heaven or hell. Hey, if you don't have a handle on these three areas of Christianity, salvation, the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and the final judgment, then you've got some catching up to do. These are the basics. It's time for some remedial work. God has more to reveal to you, and he will, but first, you need to grasp the basics. Now, notice again the plea in verse 1. Let us go on. We need to go on in faith. Faith is not a one-time proposition. We continue in faith. And the writer here is concerned about those who are stuck or stunted in their faith. In fact, he issues them a warning, verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now the point is, don't fall away. Continue in your faith. But in making this point, other questions get raised. And the first is, is it possible for a true Christian to fall away from the faith and forfeit or lose their salvation? Well, some say no. They skirt around verses 4 and 5 by suggesting that the descriptions don't actually apply to legitimate Christians. Oh, when it says that they are partakers of the Holy Spirit, people say they just flirted with the Holy Spirit. They didn't really marry Or they tasted the heavenly gift. That means that they held it in their mouths, but they didn't really swallow. 
Like Bill Clinton said, I smoked but didn't inhale. This interpretation, though, denies what's clearly stated. Commentator Warren Wiersbe was a staunch, once saved, always saved advocate, yet even he conceded to suggest the phrase partakers of the Holy Spirit means they only went along with the Spirit to an extent is to ignore the meaning of the verb. It means to become sharers. I've concluded the people addressed were true believers, not mere professors, and I agree. It's also interesting that in other passages, these same terms are clearly used of bona fide believers. In Hebrews 3 verse 1 and 3 14, the partakers there are obviously Christians. This whole letter was written to believers. There's no doubt in my mind Hebrews 6 is a warning to Christians that if they fall away and stop trusting in Jesus and turn their back on his provision for their salvation, they will no longer be saved. Now don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that a believer can lose their salvation by anything they do or don't do. Works and performance don't earn our salvation and neither do they cause us to lose our salvation. Salvation is a matter of grace through faith. But if you don't continue in your faith, that faith can atrophy and die. Of course, this raises a second question from this text. If Hebrews 6 teaches that a person can disavow their faith and lose their salvation, then doesn't it also teach that once it's lost, it can never be retrieved? Reading the passage straight through, it says, For it is impossible, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now first, please remember, there is a host of biblical passages that teach, as long as a wayward soul has a breath, there's hope. You remember the prodigal son was part of the family before he fell away. Yet the father warmly welcomed him back when he came home with a repentant heart. Also, Romans 11 verse 23 says of the Jews who were cut off from the vine, they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Note those words. For God is able to graft them in again. They had it. They lost it, but they got it back again. It's possible. I believe the writer here is saying that if a person falls away from their faith, then while he or she is in a fallen state, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. But the passage doesn't say what happens if they return. The rest of the scripture attests that if they return, God will graciously renew them to repentance And once again, make them recipients of his mercies. Remember these Hebrew believers, they were being tempted to return to the religious practices of Judaism. And they're being warned, if they renew their faith in Levitical priests, in animal sacrifices, in temple rituals, they're renouncing Jesus as God's sole provision for sin. And you can't have it both ways. It's either or. You can't trust in the blood of animals as payment for your sin and in the blood of Christ at the same time. Think of it this way. Imagine better days. The Braves are playing baseball again. 
and I score tickets to the big game, but I give them away. Now I can't go to the game. As long as I don't have a ticket, I've lost hope of getting into the game. You've got to have a ticket. But that doesn't mean I can't go back to the box office and purchase a new ticket. I can, as long as tickets are still available and heaven is not full yet. Verse 7 tells us, For the earth which drinks in the rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and briars, it is rejected and near to be cursed, whose end is to be burned. Like the rain, God's grace falls upon all men. But it's what we do with the rain that matters. If we bear fruit, we'll be blessed. If we sprout thorns, we'll be cursed. Our destiny is shaped by our response to God's grace. But beloved... We are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. He's warning these Hebrews, but he has high hopes that they'll take heed. And if they persevere in their faith, they'll receive a reward. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. Those who fall away from their faith never receive the reward they would have if they'd persevered. And then verse 11, and we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. How I love this verse. Here's how you hold on to your faith. Realize there's always a lapse of time between the giving of a promise and the fulfilling of that promise. Thus, it takes both faith and patience to inherit a promise. You know, some folks have faith, but they lack patience. And as a result, their faith flames out. It dies out. Whereas other folk wait on God. They have plenty of patience, but they never trust Him and take steps of faith. They're in sort of a perpetual holding pattern. If you're going to land the promise, then you need to exercise your faith. See, it's the combination of both faith and patience that inherits God's promises. And he points to Abraham as an example, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless you, And multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. See, God's promise to Abraham was the seed from which all salvation flowers. Since Jesus descended from Abraham, everyone saved by Jesus is blessed through the promise God made to Abraham. And God was serious about this promise, so much so that he confirmed it with an oath. Now, in ancient times, an oath was the equivalent of signing a contract. And when you swore an oath, it was always by someone greater than yourself, usually the priest or the king. You said, if I fail to keep my end of the deal, then the authority I invoke will assure my compliance. If I swear by the king, 
then the king will enforce my oath. Thus, when God took his oath to bless Abraham, since no one is greater than God, he had to swear by himself. And thus, verse 17 adds, God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise, the immutability, literally the unchangeableness of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things, his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation. No one in all of human history has ever made a promise more secure than the promise of your and my salvation. God's willingness to bless Abraham and save us is sealed by two immutable or unalterable entities, God's word and God's oath. God cannot lie, thus his word should be enough assurance for us. But God puts a guarantee on top of a guarantee by adding his oath. Abraham had a long wait for the fulfillment of the promise that God had made to him. His son Isaac was born 25 years after the promise was first given. But Abraham's wait was nothing compared to the recipients of God's salvation. The Old Testament Jews and the Gentiles who would believe waited 2,000 years from God's promise to Abraham until the birth of the Messiah. God knew there would be a long pause. That's why he wanted to bolster the faith of his people by sealing his promise with his oath. God swore by himself. It's like playing cards and trumping the trick that your partner just won. We say you double won it. That's what God has done with our salvation. It's been double won. Faith is only as good as its object. And thus God gives us a double assurance, his promise and his oath. We can take God's promises to the bank. And then in verse 18, we who have fled for refuge lay hold of the hope set before us. Here's a reference to Numbers 35 and the cities of refuge. See, unlike today in Bible times, revenge was a right. You took the life of my family member even by accident, and it was my right, if not my duty, to take your life. It was eye for an eye. Yet God defended the innocent. If the cause of death was accidental, the person at whose hands the death occurred could flee to a city of refuge for protection. And as long as that person stayed within the walls of the city, he was safe. If he left the city, then he was on his own. And this was figurative of our hope in Christ. For Jesus is our city of refuge. Continue in him. And he protects us from the penalties of sin. But fall away from your faith. Leave town, so to speak. And you're on your own. That's why the writer is exhorting us to continue in Christ. For verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus having become high priest forever. One of the earliest Christian symbols was that of a boat anchor. Archaeologists have found over 60 anchors carved into the walls of the catacombs in Rome. Hey, if your faith is in Christ, then He is your anchor. 
And an anchor is the object that goes beyond the surface. It can't be seen, yet it holds what's on the water, what's visible, so that it doesn't drift. A ship's anchor is below the water, but our anchor, Jesus, has gone above the heavens. A ship's anchor grabs onto the ocean floor, whereas the risen Christ has soared into heaven and has hooked himself to God's throne. He's now holding tight, and he anchors anyone on the surface who connects to him. This means you have a friend in high places. Here on life's surface, violent storms arise, pandemic viruses and quarantines and financial uncertainties. Yet when these storms blow, it's comforting to know that we're anchored. We're tied off to something greater than ourselves. Jesus has us anchored to God. That's why we need to continue on with Christ. No drawing back. Cut the line, tie line of faith, and you'll drift. I love how the poet puts it. I can feel the anchor fast as I meet each sudden blast, and the cable, though unseen, bears the heavenly strain between. Through the storm I safely ride till the turning of the tide, and it holds, my anchor holds. Blow your wildest then, O gale, on my bow so small and frail. By his grace I shall not fail, for my anchor holds, my anchor holds. No matter what we've been called on to endure, we'll hold fast if we're anchored to Jesus. Don't let go. Remember the point of the book of Hebrews. It was written to Jewish believers who no longer had their synagogues. Their religious routine had now been disrupted. A priest that they could see was no longer part of their, their worship. Indeed, Jesus was a better priest, but his ministry was now invisible. They needed faith to relate to him. And this is the situation we find ourselves in today. In light of the coronavirus, we've been cut off from our synagogue or church. Our religious routine has been disrupted. We can't shake hands with the priest or, in a sense, the pastor. And the question is, how do we respond? Do we act like big babies or mature adults? Are we dull of hearing or are we serious about obeying God and living out our faith? Hey, we're being tested. Let's live what we've learned. We'll study more about the priesthood of Jesus next week, that he is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. For now, let's hold fast to our faith. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And in these uncertain times, we're so blessed that there is an anchor that holds us steady that holds us fast. And though we can't see that anchor, though he's below the surface or above the heavens, nevertheless, we feel we feel that cord attached. We feel the, the tension. We thank you, Lord, for your power in our lives. We thank you for your assurance. And Lord, this morning we rest completely.